I want to start this episode with a little disclaimer. Um, I'm not an educator. I'm also not a historian. This is just an, I guess, somewhat informative, but also just a genuine discussion between two people who are very interested in this topic. My second disclaimer is that obviously both Hadil and I are Africans, but part of the diaspora. And so the opinions that we share and reflect on and the nuance that we give is obviously going to be very specific to our opinions that have been shaped based on environment and probably our family, etc. And so the opinion of someone who grew up in a country like Kenya, for example, might be very different, especially because I'm not experiencing the politics firsthand. Um, but yeah, I hope you enjoy this episode. To say hey, hi, hoi, welcome, bonjour, annyeong, salam, kamachoba, bom dia, nyadibule langa pangasin zansi Africa, siya bonga. Hola, como estas? New beginnings, new faces, but we'll still be here joined at the head. Hi guys, and welcome back to A Loping of the Truth. It's been a while. Um, as part of Black History Month, I'm doing a series with the lovely Hadil. Um, and in this episode, we are talking about Pan-Africanism. So Hadil, how would you define Pan-Africanism? So to me, I'd see Pan-Africanism based on the research that I've done as African countries uniting effectively with the assumption that there is a shared goal, to some extent shared identity, and a shared destination, which the unification of African states would help achieve, almost sort of mirroring like what the US has in a way. Um, but it's, I think it's just fundamentally um, African countries uniting um, because there is a belief, there is a shared goal um, that they can arrive to better together. Yeah, I would say that I agree with that definition. Um, the African Union defined it as an ideology and movement that encourages the solidarity of Africans worldwide, which is pretty much what you said, um, based on the belief that unity is vital to economic, social and like political progress, um, I guess, for every African around the world as part of the diaspora. So would you consider yourself a Pan-Africanist and why or why not? Personally, I haven't completely finished researching Pan-Africanism, so I couldn't tell you yes or no. I think um, there are a lot of concepts and ideas that pan-africanism pushes forward that are really useful um that sense of empowerment that sense of um unity and community it can create with africans across the world is a very powerful thing and i think that's something really interesting but personally i haven't completely finished my research on pan-africanism and i do recognize that there are also some cons and some negatives and criticisms that exist on the school of thought and the movement and so I personally haven't finished researching to be able to tell you yes or no but I think it's very interesting how about you so I would say that with pan-africanism I'm obviously for the like sharing of ideas and the supporting one another and the camaraderie that comes with it but at the same time it's still a question of the intentions especially behind like the major leaders or like proponents of the pan-africanist movement so if we look at people like Gaddafi there's obviously a lot of cons towards his ideas when it came to being a pan-africanist and it's like I don't know to what extent I align with those if that makes sense mm. um what would you say some of the cons were um I definitely say so for example one big thing that kept coming up was I think there's a double-edged sword here so Pan-Africanism in some ways seeks to recognize the reasons for the failure of African nations, for example. 
And I think that's largely attributed to colonial past, to um, members of the wider international community. And that sometimes prevents the introspective reflection on why, for example, African leaders are a big problem within Africa. And the movement doesn't necessarily address them all the time. And the second thing is um, the inability to address how class um, and within like African nations themselves, how class impacts Africa and prevents it from moving forward. I think those, um, I'd say blindsides, is that the right word? Is that yeah. a word? Yeah, blindsides impact how um, effective the movement can be. Although that's like something relatively small to correct, but like because there's so much debate around the like the topic itself, it's quite a complicated and I think it's a big problem that needs to be solved at the same time. That's fair. Do you then think that Pan-Africanism is practical in terms of like, if, so for example, um, I think it was Gaddafi who wanted a like unified economy and like the idea of having like a unified army for like Africa as a collective and like, I guess also like a structure above um, African leaders. Do you think that's something that's actually practical to enforce given the way in which African leaders like work within the continent? And do you think it's also something that would be supported by the African people? I think that's a really interesting question. And I think it's a very big question as well. Um, I'd say that I find that concept very interesting because firstly, let's tackle the concept of identity in Africa. Do Africans all share a shared identity? I'd be more lenient to say no, actually they don't. And the erasure of those differences and ignoring those differences and acting as though identity in Africa is all um, is, is effectively a monolith is not necessarily true. And that would make it impractical, right? Because identity is a big thing. Culture is a big thing. Shared um, and collective community identity is a big thing. And those often clash with others within the continent. So, for example, you have religious disagreements throughout Africa. You have um, economic, like economic systems. Some African countries are more lenient to right-wing systems. Others are more to left-wing economic systems. And almost assuming that those things don't exist um, would be highly impractical. I think the other part of having like a shared army feeds into that same fundamental issue in that like, how do we decide which um, problem is worth fighting for, right? I think a lot of the time Pan-Africanism is compared to the US, for example, um, but the nature of the US is so completely different. How it was built, how it was created, the foundations and the values which cement the United States of America are fundamentally different to one that would cement, you know, a united Africa in that sense. Um, and so it would be naive to almost assume that those problems would vanish just because there was a new um, movement that sought to unite Africa, but under what pretense, right? Mm. Like, it's very utopian to assume that, yeah, let's unite every African country and then everything's going to be solved. But in saying this, I feel like I've given a very scathing and critical review of no, Pan-Africanism. It's, it's a fair opinion. Yeah, like I just really wanted to dig through those criticals because I think there needs to be nuance in the discussion, right? Mm. These are things, like identity is a big part. Like to me personally as a Sudanese person, right? If I was told I had to give up my culture just so we could have a united Africa, I'd be like, well, is there a better way to do this? 
Mm. And that's kind of one of the big like um, debates I'd have about whether it's practical. Yeah, no, I agree. I do think it's a very like utopian idea and not something that is actually very practical because even down to like the structures of different countries. So the fact that I think Zimbabwe and South Africa use Roman Dutch law. How would that work if we now have like another kind of infrastructure on top of African leaders? Like what law code are we going to follow? Um, and I do think even with the main or like the key leaders that pro, that were very like pro-Pan-Africanism, they all also had like other things they wanted to push forward. So like, um, again, D- Gaddafi was very kind of um, pro-introducing an Arab-Islamic um, kind of code in, in t- within the African Union. And it's like, well, how would that work with um, how would that work with, again, like you were saying, all the different religions that exist in the continent and what would be the, I guess, social repercussions of doing so? Um, and also if we consider stuff like the formation of different countries in Africa, so like the Berlin Conference of 1884, is us then created this creating this idea of like a united Africa, something that's pushing or like working to push forward colonial ideas right i was literally just about to say this right are we self-colonizing in this sense are we seeking to mimic an already like highly powerful imperial country are we um wait how do i say this because i really want to say this well right um wait um yeah it almost seems as though we're creating a force to combat ones that have like have been a detriment to african countries for so long it seems as though we're giving up culture to fight against another culture. And that's almost like a self-colonization in a way. And I think it um, reimposes colonial ideas and structures that were put on Africa so long ago, well, not that long ago, but you know what I'm saying, historically placed on Africa, um, almost accidentally. (laughs) Mm. I think especially because like when you were saying how when you think of like the idea of a United States of Africa, it's um, kind of a reflection or like done with the United States of America being in mind. America is a country like sure, there's different regions. People have different like personal histories and like regional histories. But like Africa isn't a monolith of people like we all again have different cultures, different issues, different individual histories, different leaders some a bit insane others okay but like it's not a monolith of a continent and I think often when the west and I guess even though pan-africanism is an idea that was um that kind of came into being via Caribbean and um African people it still seems like it's very much talked about with western ideas being like involved in the conversation and I don't think that the West is what we should look to when it comes to defining Africa as a con- as a co- continent, um, especially because like countries like Zim or like other countries in the continent haven't existed for as long as countries like Britain or um, Britain, England or um, America, which has existed for what, like 200 years. Absolutely. But even in saying that, like having reflected on the discussion we've had so far, is it that far fetched? Like, I feel like this is going back entirely on what I just said, but is it that far-fetched? Like, what is the real obstacle here? Because I think, you know, it's quite simple in its essence, right? The idea is we unite Africa, we have our shared and common goals, and that's 
presumably success, development, economic growth, um, reinstatement of political stability, et cetera, et cetera, preserving of cultures. Does that necessarily contradict what many Africans in the continent want today, right? What is the real obstacle? Is it Western nations? Is it colonial, well, leaders that have been put in place by colonial legacies? Let me say that properly. Leaders who carry colonial legacy and legacies in Africa today? Is it the political opponents that were manufactured? Let me not get too much into that, but, you know, leaders who have been placed in Africa to cause that instability and prevent Africa from growing? Is it the constant neocolonialism? Like these are issues which actually also are derived from outside of the continent. And so are the things that Pan-Africanism um, seeks to kind of achieve and explain that far-fetched? I'd also say that there is a there's an interesting discussion to be had there. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Um, I do think it's the risk of the West seeking to destabilize countries Absolutely. in Africa. I mean, as per usual. Um, but yeah, because I think even if we are to look at examples, I would say Libya is what I come back to quite a lot just because it's what I've been reading about the most. But um, the removal of Gaddafi, even though he was a dictator, like I don't, I'm not going to say that I support him or his beliefs. Um, by any means but in the removal of him they there did end up being the creation of a power vacuum that destabilized the country and it was a country that I guess on paper during his reign was kind of at its best for a period of time and so I do think it is the fact that the west has so much power and so much influence in Africa and no African leader really wants to do anything that could risk I guess, the downfall of their country or the downfall of their power. And their allyship, right? Yeah, definitely. I think also, um, let's not forget in the 21st century, it's no longer just like Western nations like the UK and US. We've got China and Russia, for example, and their loans against African countries where, yeah, exactly, where they're buying, um, like where they're loaning countries in Africa money, which they know the leaders are not going to be able to pay back. And the consequence of that is that they lose parts of their land. When I was on holiday in Sudan um, a few years back, I remember being in the car and a family member telling me, you know, that's not owned by Sudan. You know, that part of Sudan isn't owned by Sudan. And that's just that just goes to show it's a form of evidence that really emphasizes that there are so many destabilizing factors. And perhaps maybe our only option is pan-Africanism at this present moment in time. Yeah, I do think also, because obviously when we talk about Pan-Africanism, we also talk about like Afri people who are descendants from Africa who are part of the diaspora, right? So people who are part who are from the Caribbean, who people who are from Haiti, um, and the fact that those are countries that have done a lot in the sense that, so for example, with Haiti, I think they were the first country to end slavery formally. So I think it was 1805. Um, and obviously their legacy is essentially as like one of the countries who really like fought off slavery and was able to like establish their own country but it still came at the detriment of like their economy right so they were paying so much money back to France I think I don't know if they still are if it was up until like I wanted to um correct something that I said so the contract between Haiti and France was signed on the 17th of April 1825 and my understanding of it is that essentially 
France was like, if you don't want us to reconquer you or recolonize or attempt to, then you owe us this amount of money as compensation for the property, um, that property being people. And originally the deal was that Haiti was going to pay France 150 million gold francs um, as compensation over a five-year period. That five-year period ended up being 122 years. The debt ended in 1947. So that's 122 years where Haiti was in debt to France, when in my opinion they should never have been. But it's like, those are things that need to be considered when we talk about Pan-Africanism and what it is that we are to achieve if we're going to do it practically. Um, so that kind of brings me on to my next question, which is, do you think the West have a responsibility to support the Pan-Africanism movement? That's actually quite interesting. Um, I think first, let's define what we mean by support, because that always seems to be misconstrued um, by foreign leaders pretending to act in the best interests of countries. I think um, support is important and powerful, but that support must come from a place of this is what the people who are going to be affected by this decision would like, and we stand behind them. I think it's really interesting considering legal concepts such as the right to legal sovereignty, for example, um, the fact that every nation is sovereign in its own right and others, others don't have the right effectively to intervene to some degree like that's a legal debate in its own um in its own right and how like international organizations such as the un for example nato play into all of this um but i think they have a duty to support not only like through pushing forward voices of those that are speaking but hashtag reparations financially the destabilization and the mass extraction of wealth from africa that's taken place um, for the benefit of Western nations, surely shows that something must be done, something must be given back to support the growth and development of countries. Definitely, I definitely agree. Do you think that Africa as a continent will ever be completely emancipated from Western powers? It's an interesting question. I'll start it with, um, should we want to be? So in that, like, we exist in an international world, like this world, we we are not we are not isolated nations. We are impacted by each other, whether that be through trade, travel, immigration, tourism, um, you know, economic crises in one nation automatically impact another. And for that mere fact, emancipation becomes whether or not that relationship is abusive, whether that relationship is exploitative. And I absolutely think African nations should be free from the abusive and exploitative colonialist and neo-colonial um, relationship with countries across the world. But I don't think that should mean we should sever ties and completely cut off um, the Western world because there is also a benefit for Africa to engage in, in um, meaningful trade, engage also in positive movements across the world, for example, to uphold workers' rights, women's rights, racial rights, and so forth. I could list so many. So personally, I would say, yes, absolutely, we need to be done with the exploitative and abusive relationships that are upheld by nations and institutions. But in the same light, um, there is also a positive um, perspective I'd have on the international community and its possibilities. 
Um, I do think, yeah, when we talk about the idea of being emancipated, it does sound like very, as if we're, we're saying that the African content should be its like separate thing with zero communication to the outside, which doesn't really work given the whole like globalization as a thing, especially as we like continue to modernize, I guess, mm. the world and the way that we communicate with other countries. Um, but I, I think realistically, it's going to be a really long time before Absolutely. any African country really has like its own, I guess, sovereignty um, or power um, when it comes to like world politics. But one day, fingers crossed. Do you think that globalization is a threat to black discourse? I really like this question. I think it's not necessarily globalization, but bad habits we've picked up on discourse, right? And going back to that concept we've spoken about previously on blackness and African identity being considered a monolith in some sense, when you allow marketable and um, already dominant narratives to dominate discussions on like development growth and change you don't really have nuanced discussions and to really like be specific about this for example on social media people only talk about the same five things over and over and over and over again because they are marketable recognizable and they're easy to discuss but I think globalization isn't as much of a oh I changed my mind <laughs> I've changed my mind <laughs> no I have changed my mind I think globalization could perhaps be a big threat because it changes what we talk about, right? So historically, discussions on racism and discrimination were very isolated and as per the environment. However, now there's so much movement and change. So much needs to be considered. I think I remember having a conversation with you about how people assume like black culture is the same in the US and the UK and how they are derived from completely different concepts. So for example, in the US, black culture exists because of the like mass movements of um, enslaved people due to the transatlantic slave trade. And so they've created communities and cultures that are shared within them. And because you can't specify where each person's from, they've decided to adopt black culture. However, does that really exist in the same essence in the UK? Not necessarily, because for example, I'm from Sudan, you know where you're from, I have friends that are from Nigeria, and so it's Nigerian culture, Sudanese culture, etc. It's not black culture. This movement and change creates a very interesting dynamic in conversations. And often we remove the nuance and we remove the important talking points in favor of it, just assuming every black person is the same, which is obviously detrimental. Mm. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think um, in general, oftentimes we have certain conversations, America is kind of like put to the, the forefront. Um, and that seems to be a kind of recurring theme when it comes to the conversation surrounding what is blackness and what is black culture. Um, and like you were saying, there is a lot of nuance in our separate kind of experiences um and even when we have conversations about stuff like cultural appropriation it does seem very much like one point of view is centered and there isn't room for nuance because then people are like kind of called out for it for having like valid different opinions given that they were from different places in the world um and the same is said when it comes to like the type of language that we use as black people and the fact that like african-american vernacular is kind of this isn't a bad thing by any means but it it is I think so I think I was on TikTok the other day and someone was talking about Gen Z speak right yeah and I'm like 
<laughs> it's not really a thing. Or even when it comes to like um, conversing as a black person in the UK, the expectation that you're meant to like speak a certain way. That's like, that's doesn't make sense in the context yeah, of our histories. Um, and even the kind of, not monopolizing, but like the popularizing of terms like ghetto. Again, that doesn't really make sense in the context of British black history, because even then the term ghetto is from um, Jewish history. I think it was Jewish history in Italy specifically. Um, and then that became a thing in America because it was used to describe the areas in which you could only find like black people from a certain class. And again, not really a thing in the UK because black people weren't segregated in the same way. They were segregated massively by class, but not racially. But yeah, um, I do think that when we have these conversations, it is important to bring in nuance, like you said, and to consider that they are voices that are equally about as valid around the world. Um, but yeah, thank you guys for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed. And if you have any other opinions you want to share, feel free to um, kind of email. Thank you. Make sure you check out the next one, guys. Okay. Okay. <laughs>